Welcome to a podcast brought to you by the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. Our academy is a national organization committed to excellence in orthopedic manual physical therapy practice, education, and research. And we're here to explore a wide range of topics with you through interviews with content experts. Hello, my name is Stephen Schaefer, and I'm pleased to bring to you an interview with Dr. Cameron McDonald. Dr. McDonald has practiced clinically for 25 years as a physical therapist. During that time, he has obtained board certification in both geriatrics and orthopedics, as well as fellowship training in orthopedic manual physical therapy. Dr. McDonald also obtained a doctoral degree from Regis University, is currently working on a PhD, and has been published in various peer-reviewed journals. As if that were not enough, he is an associate professor and researcher, as well as both the director of the Regis University Fellowship in Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapy and the current president of the Colorado chapter of the American Physical Therapy Association. We invited him to the show today to discuss a recent paper from the Journal of Manual and Manipulative Therapy. That paper was titled, The Current Manipulation Debate, Historical Context to Address a Broken Narrative. Now, let's get to the interview. Dr. McDonald, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Steve, I'm doing very well, obviously considering uh, the whole circumstances for society right now, but I appreciate the time, and Cameron is certainly fine as we go forward in the interview. Excellent. Well, we are excited to have you here today. We actually tried to do this interview a little while back, and we had some technical difficulties, so let's hope that uh, take two works better than that. Well, yes, computer viruses in our past and human viruses now, so we'll see. Wishing us good speed. Excellent, excellent. So if we're going to understand the present, and that's what we're going to talk about in terms of manipulation, then we need to understand the past. So my first question for you, and I ask this half-jokingly, of course, is which profession was the first to use manipulation? Well... Since you use the word profession, I would probably need to consider what was classed as a profession. Now, medical providers for about 5,000 years, as far as we know, have used manipulation. Medical physician-type providers, ancient Greece, ancient Rome, were using and writing textbooks in information with regards to manipulation in the modern professions. Chiropractic, osteopathy, physiotherapy, and manual medicine within physician practice, all pretty much borrowed manipulation from a group of lay individuals, semi-professional we would call bone setters from the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. The first modern profession of that group to truly utilize manipulation and term it as manipulation would be mechanotherapists in Europe, out of which was derived early gymnastics into physiotherapy, and those individuals then in the United States led on into osteopathy and then chiropractic. That's about as quick an overview as I could give. Well, that was a great overview, and it's a subtle one with nuances because I think part of what a lot of us are familiar with is the sort of, let's say, contentious back and forth, you know, the, the lawsuits about who can do what, and, you know, it just becomes a little bit problematic. And The truth of it is, and your paper very nicely points this out, is that the history is very long, very complicated, and very much intertwined, and we're all essentially standing on the shoulders of giants. 
Very true, but those giants in many ways don't have names. We love to give the giants names. It's interesting, like in the osteopathic profession, it's Andrew Taylor Still. In the chiropractic profession, it's Daniel David Palmer. In orthopedic medicine, manual medicine, maybe it's James Syriax. Who is it in physical therapy? There is no name. And that, to me, was an interesting consideration. And that allowed others, in essence, to maybe present that we'd borrowed from the other professions who had what they would term in their own vernacular, sometimes a godhead or a founding individual thinker. But when you go back and look at the writings of Still and Palmer and Syriax in different ways, those James, James Syriax, to some extent, did represent that he had, I, he'd sort of developed his own approach. The others, Daniel David, Andrew Taylor, still spoke openly and wrote how they'd borrowed from lay people, borrowed from traditional bone setters, borrowed from traditional healers, and they just applied a different theory to age-old types of hands-on techniques. Whereas we in the physiotherapy, physical therapy profession, sort of developed our approach, but never really tied it to an individual. That sort of happened later on when we bring in different names such as Kaltenborn, or we bring in Maitland, we bring in Evanyaf. But at that point, that's 70, 80, 100 years after the genesis of our profession. And so that disconnect allows the narrative to be reinterpreted and maligned, you could say. So that's that. some of those interesting dynamics. We didn't point to a, an originator in our profession. We, to some extent, respected that it came from many places. But other professions were able to sometimes win the argument because they had an originator. They did, they had a, coin a phrase, a subject zero to utilize in the discussions of who came first. So is that so what that. you think is currently broken about the current manipulation narrative for physical therapists? Yes. In many ways, we have a very short view. And it is that. The physical, I'll just use the term physiotherapist, narrative internationally is maybe a little cleaner than what it is in the United States nationally for physical therapists. There is an aspect to the history of manipulative use in physical therapy practice in the United States that seems to start in the 1950s and 1960s where the originators of the profession in this country are somewhat well-known and identified, but not the craft that they originally had. Mary McMillan, founder of the Women's Physiotherapy Association, which quickly became the American Physical Therapy Association over a couple of years, was trained in St. Thomas's Hospital, Liverpool, England, and those who educated her were, were mechanotherapists who used manipulative interventions as part of her education. And that was brought over originally, it was in her original writings, that we should utilize hands-on manipulative specific interventions as part of our component of patient management. But that rapidly went away in the way that physical therapy education was delivered in the United States. And so there was an almost purging from the profession of the use of our hands in some ways, especially at the joint level, but not maybe so much at the tissue level. And like a vacuum developed in the United States for the use of manipulative type of interventions, even though in the rest of the world, they were being utilized by physiotherapists 
who were continuing with the traditions and the practices of those forebears from Northern Europe and other areas in the use of hands-on treatment without the disruption that occurred in the United States. And so the fracturing of the understanding of how our profession came about allows for a lot of misinterpretation of do we have a historical utilization and a historical precedent in using manipulative interventions in our practice in the United States. I would imagine that it's some of that interesting history that led to the fact that in the modern day United States, especially, we have certain restrictions that are often placed on physical therapists. Can you speak to what those restrictions are when it comes to a physical therapist and the performance of manipulation? Yes, and they're slowly going away, but there were considerable in the 1980s and 90s, and even before that. What still exists in some states, such as Washington, there's still some, let's say, laborious um, standards and requirements to meet to use manipulative interventions. In a few states, there's the requirement to have the doctoral degree versus an entry-level degree in physical therapy practice. That just got changed in North Carolina. There's some needs for referral from a physician, such as North Carolina as well, which has just been moved back. There is language in California tied to a very old attorney general's opinion on manipulation with regards to manipulating an infant child in, in the womb, so therefore we don't do that, so we can't use manipulation. But what this speaks to is that we allowed our profession to be defined by the American Medical Association from approximately 19, in the 1940s through to about 1983 in the United States. And that was heavily dominated by a physiatry approach to physical medicine and rehabilitation. And we became partitioned within those parameters and manipulation wasn't in that partition. One of the real nuances of this historical knowledge is knowing that until the Code of Ethics was derived for the Physical Therapists Practice Association in 1934-35, all physical therapy services were provided direct access without restriction. But when the Code of Ethics was written, was promulgated at a time of the Great Depression, the, those, uh, the, the individuals leading our profession at that time voluntarily placed themselves under the authority of physician referral to be able to maintain independent practices in the community. It was a trade-off. But what happened with that was our profession, which was still relatively young but was autonomous, came under regulatory scrutiny and authority by the American Medical Association, by the Physiatry Association, and it changed our practice because it changed our educational standards and manipulation sort of walked out of the profession in the United States. And the final piece of interest to that is that the American, the Physiatry Association used to be the American Medical Association Physiotherapy Special Interest Group. But the type of physiotherapy being provided was much more modalities-based, passive interventions, didn't have a higher level load demand exercises, didn't have manipulative interventions. And so it was what's also why we have physical therapy and not physiotherapy in the United States, because our early progenitors wanted to be recognized as being different than the physiotherapy being provided in the physician setting. The irony of that is that that eventually took over how we approached our practice, and then physical therapy ended up being similar to the physiotherapy under the physicians earlier on in the 20s and 30s. 
it's such an interesting part of the history. And of course, what it ends up doing is generating what seems to be in many ways an illogical quasi oversight. And I know a lot of our audience will already be familiar with the basic premise here, but for a minute, can you briefly describe why it's illogical to have someone like a physiotherapist require a, let's say, prescription from a medical doctor to perform manipulation? It is, it's illogical in, in many ways because the skill set needed to make the clinical decision-making with regards to the use of manipulation is present in the mind of the practitioner. It can't be placed there through a referral or a prescription. And because manipulative interventions are utilized during the course of an ongoing assessment evaluation of a patient, and they're not predetermined or prescribed because by themselves, manipulation provides a short-term benefit, ideally, that is then utilized to allow patients to move more freely, engage more in functional exercise, have a neurological reset, participate actively in their plan of care management. But there's the, the constant decision-making needed to utilize that is only derived in that therapeutic alliance, in that patient-provider relationship. A physician could consider if they were knowledgeable about the use of hands-on interventions, the use of manipulation by a physical therapists, and recommend it. But in every state in the United States, the physical therapist is held to be autonomous in their decision-making with regards to the provision of a plan of care. So therefore, really, the extent of any referral that has authority might be eval and treat. But then any re recommendations could be made, protocols could be suggested, but the, as the physical therapist is held to provide an autonomous evaluation that guides the plan of care in all jurisdictions in the United States, there's really no space in that for another provider to create the decision-making in treatment delivery. So it, it, that is illogical, that the restrictions exist as an end result in many ways of treating ourselves as a modality. So therefore, if we represent ourselves as a modality, it empowers others to consider how to provide that modality. So for the physician, I don't hold them at fault, but they can look at our profession as a modality so they feel there's a belief you can then, you have a role for patient management to dictate how much of that modality, how much of that medication, how much of that monitoring occurs, which is not consistent to how we practice. And so that's the dyskinesis of thought that happens around this topic at times. If you're predetermining how much of something is received, then the delivery of it is technical. And we are not technicians, we're professions. So really only we can determine that which the patient needs based upon our ongoing assessment evaluation. And to believe something, someone else can do that would be to believe also that you yourself weren't a professional, you were a technician. I think that was a great description and there are so many very important points that come into there. And, you know, I for one, and I, I'm sure you agree with this, I don't really necessarily trust anything that anyone writes down, whether they're a physician or a, a physio, et cetera, until I verify it myself. And I definitely have the training and the skill set to fill out or have the patient fill out that intake paperwork, do a subjective exam, do an objective exam, and then come to my own conclusion about whether or not that person 
may or may not benefit from any given technique. It's it's more of a professional process to me than just a you know a thing that I'm told to do. Yes, because the only one doing the telling has to be the practitioner who is has that primary evaluative requirement for that patient. And so we can have guidelines, but we really can't have rules. So when we consider the regulatory history and to step back and maybe maybe help other people understand why there is somewhat been this power disconnect between some professions on the topic of manipulation and regulatory authority, what Andrew Taylor Still and what Daniel David Palmer were driven and BJ Palmer, who followed his father more specifically, to do at the turn of the 19th century was get their professions regulated and recognized as autonomous providers and decision makers. That was their driving force because they recognized that without that, they would be fragmented and directed and controlled by others. Our profession was not as aggressive or as intentional in that for a long time, as far as I can tell, in the United States. And so when we then became partnered to physician oversight, it very it almost automatically abrogated our decision-making authority away from ourselves because we hadn't fought for it in the first place as aggressively. The corollary to that is that osteopathy is more of a trade. It's not a recognized profession in Southern Europe to this day in many settings because that was not the push that was taken there. So this has happened in reverse in some settings. It took osteopathy decades to get recognized in the United Kingdom because whenever they came over and petitioned to get recognized as an independent profession, the legislators, especially in the 20s and the 30s in the British Parliament, would turn around and say, people are already providing what you're offering here. It's the physical physiotherapists. It's the, man it's the, the manual medicine-based physicians. So getting the footprint in place regulatorily was crucial for the osteopaths and chiropractors in the United States was more crucial for physiotherapists in Europe, even if they generated similar professions to some extent that were eventually going to collide when they tried to migrate across the Atlantic in different directions. I think another one of the aspects is the fact that people often assume that things like spinal manipulation, especially of the cervical spine, is inherently dangerous. So, of course, a medical doctor would need to make sure the person is safe to have that performed. Can you speak for a moment to the general topic of how safe is a manipulation technique for the patient? Or to word that in a slightly different way, how much should people be worried about whether or not they're going to get harmed when somebody's performing a manipulation technique? Well, that's quite the question. And I think I'll, I'll answer it in a few different ways because you've brought up a very interesting part of the history of manipulation and its utilization. With that first part of the question about physicians' perception of a need to oversee an intervention from another provider. One of the early writings or presentations on the history of manipulation that's very interesting was an 1864 lecture given by James Paget, who is after named Paget's disease, British physician, to the British Medical Society, basically presenting in a talk on the good that bone setters do from the basic premise that Bone setters throughout Northern Europe were providing a lot of manipulative interventions, wrenching, wrenching and working on joints they called luxated, which is interesting to hear that phrase before other professions came to exist, 
and providing interventions that actually at a societal level were very popular and created a lot of benefit. But they perceived also that the uneducated individuals providing this created harm at times as well. So the push was to stop trying to get rid of the bone setters, but to take over their practice under the austere and learned supervision of a physician such that only the good inherent in the hands-on practice would then come forward. And that thinking around if you you needed the knowledge of a physician to make the hands-on practice safe. So that's that aspect. With regards to bring it forward to 2020, the safety of interventions, we know that manipulation when used judiciously for the right patient at the right time has an extremely good safety profile. The data on it is that basically the risks of cervical manipulation causing a negative adverse event are roughly the equivalent to high-intensity exercise causing an adverse event. Maybe six out of 10 million versus seven out of 10 million. We also know that the best indicators of someone who has a potential for risk of cervical manipulation is someone who has a history of hypertension, cardiovascular disease, previous cardiovascular compromise, and is basically telling you they're having a headache or a pain presentation that is very unusual, severe, and not consistent with prior presentations of just cervical spine pain. There is a subset of individuals who you can't really identify that risk profile in. We don't know quite how small that is. But the practitioner who engages to a patient, who asks a reasonable question, who looks at a vascular screening history, who uses prepositional assessment just as part of ongoing hands-on delivery, is extremely safe compared to the individual who might have some chronic neck pain who walks up and receives a pharmacological product that involves known irritants to the gastrointestinal tract, which can cause internal bleeding and hospitalizations, which occur in the tens to hundreds of thousands of Americans every year in the United States, versus the adverse events of manipulation. So there's always going to be the cavalier, high velocity, end rotational, unnecessary interventions that can be used in very small subsets of presentations in practitioners but it doesn't speak to a generalizable harm within at least, I would say, I wouldn't say our profession, but I'd say any professional who's using manipulation who is engaging in individualized patient assessment. I'd say the, the dangers and the harms exist where manipulation is being used, where there really isn't a patient presentation that suggests that it would be efficacious. It's more theoretically framed around a affecting multiple body systems and organs or might be more of a routine utilization of manipulation in the same format for every patient who comes in. So as long as clinical decision-making is present that's tied to a patient need with reasonable screening, extremely safe in our hands. Of course, I couldn't agree more. That's very consistent with you know my knowledge and reading of the literature. One of the things that always comes to mind when I have this conversation with people is what I like to call, quote unquote, Hollywood syndrome. And that is a lot of my patients have a preconceived notion that you twist the head really quickly, maybe like you've seen Arnold Schwarzenegger do in a movie a thousand times, and then the person's going to instantly die. Yeah, and I, I often have to talk people emotionally and psychologically down off that ledge because they're, they're literally afraid of the technique. 
because they're comparing what they know in terms of Hollywood as opposed to listening to what the actual evidence says about the safety level of these techniques. Yes, and because it makes quick press, that which is dramatic, which is emotive, will be read and looked at by many people. Uh, the expectations effects abound there. I think yeah, when you said Schwarzenegger, I thought you were going to sort of maybe talk to Bruce Lee and some of the martial arts movies, which also show similar effects. Uh, that aspect of what you call the Hollywood syndrome talks to me about expectations. So we need to be doing a good job with patients in educating them that when we're using manipulation, as we have for a long time, it's just a component of ongoing patient management. It's not a standalone singular event that should be considered in total isolation to everything else. Because ideally, as practitioners, our decision to manipulate is really driven by our hands-on ongoing assessment of a patient and is then not a predetermined, I'm going to use a high-velocity thrust technique. It's more, I'm going to assess how you move. I'm going to look at your joint presentation within your overall context. In an ongoing conversation, we may choose to use manipulative interventions as for you, the individual. And then those techniques are not exciting to see. They're not YouTube videos that get posted. That can be the problem too, that we get into a, hey, look what I can do type approach versus let's see what a reasoned approach is for an individual person. And as we're talking historically, if you go back in the literature, what you'll see written, though, is, and it talks to this, is that before we had Hollywood, we had the weekly tabloids. We had the weekly press. We had the Bristol News. We had the daily newsletter of the medical associations where they would take the most exciting, the most interesting, the most unusual and put it out there for the publication. This is not a new, this is not a new dynamic of just... It's not a social, this is not driven just because Twitter got invented. This was happening. There's written articles from the 1700s that talk about the unfortunate incident of the barber of the high-velocity rotational dissection of an artery. That which is associated to poor outcomes death gets published. And so we think actually in a modern society where there's far more information available, there might be less traction for these type of sens sensationalized type reporting events because we have so much more interconnectedness to so many more people that we can actually measure out information received against maybe a thousand points of information versus two. So moving forward, if there were a few things that you could see happen within not just our profession, but all professions in terms of, you know, making manipulation function the way that it should so that we can all work together and collaborate and help patients get best. What, what are the things that you would like to see happen within the healthcare professions? Well, I feel like we need to once again see the value of our hands, but from the perspective that the, our hands enable people to engage in functional activity and purposeful exercise, that we get away from thinking that we are addressing a patient's presentation by removing a select lesion or a select impairment that was by itself creating the whole presentation. This is not to argue against trying to identify more specifically localized tissue presentations, but to have it such that the professions utilizing hands-on treatments are doing them 
to engage the patient in active functional restorative movement. We worked this out a very long time ago in other ways. Those who genesis the mechanotherapy into the gymnastic profession in the 19th century, some of them wrote books called The Movement Cure. But as we do with revisionists and rediscovering history, five years ago, we, as a profession we, in the United States, we somewhat put forward that we had come onto this idea that we were really all about being movement specialists. Well, that's how we started. We just forgot it in the interim. So that the utilization of hands-on treatments are somewhat essential from the perspective of teaching an individual their body can move safely, it can take force and load, and that they can move into restorative exercise without fear that they won't, their, their tissues and their joints will be able to tolerate it. We have medicalized people for so long where to be recumbent, to be at rest, to be unloading, to avoid tasks, to use braces and stays, has taken away a trust in our ability to move and function in the population that also, to some extent, has allowed many to represent that hands-on interventions don't have the value we believe they do. It was hands-on interventions and, hand, and guiding people through movement, guiding people through specific exercise, using our hands to restore joint and functionality, using our hands on soft tissues that created the value of our profession in the first place. But now we have debates where we look to say, should we even be teaching hands-on interventions? This is happening in the United Kingdom. It's happening in Australia. And I see that as a great threat to our ability to provide the most we can to society through the use of our hands. And we need to see the scientific aspect. We need to see the specific opportunities that our hands can provide for patients, for populations, instead of moving towards statements such as, well, exercise is the new medicine. So if everyone just exercised, that would be great. So what role do our hands play? We have a specific ability to make people move better, to function better, and to engage more purposefully in exercise through the use of our hands. And in some ways, we're forgetting that. In some ways, we're losing it. And we'll suffer a consequence because then we will allow ourselves to be replaced by those who specialize in exercise, but they may do it from a prescriptive function as a technician versus the, the hands-on judicious skilled application of ongoing assessment needed to feel someone's need, to feel the tibiofemoral joint, to look at proximal tib-fib articulation, to then constantly look at that in-between gait cycles, squat tasks, functional step-downs, and go back to our hands again, and to have that as a back and forth where our hands are our vehicle to helping people move, not a barrier to helping people move. Building off that point, in, in theory, you already answered this, although not per se with these specific words. Why do you think that physical therapists should seek out advanced post-professional training, such as what we call fellowship training here in the U.S., but in other countries it includes things like advanced master's degrees? Because of the breadth of our education, as an educator in an academic setting, I see as an assistant professor here at the university I'm at that we are teaching to a doctoral level across a very broad profession now, from wound care to neonatal to infant development to 
the management of the elderly to working within infectious disease situations, to the management of cardiopulmonary dysfunction, intensive care units, to using other types of diagnostic interventions, such that we can only drill down so far within the current DPT education for individuals in the use of our hands. And that holds to also how much prescriptive exercise education we can provide. We are at this time creating generalists who need to then identify where they best practice, where their positive biases are with regards to how they're going to interface for patients and manage them, and to allow those individuals then to get the much more structured and deeper education and review of hands-on treatment approaches, and to do that with mentoring and feedback based upon their early post-professional experiences in clinic settings and other settings, to develop the hands-on skills to optimize that interaction. It used to be considered a 10,000-hour rule that you needed that many hours to become an expert in the use of your hands. I'm not sure it's that long, but there is a curve effect. And when we graduate these new clinicians, they have excellent knowledge. They have great skills in researching literature. But when it comes to how many patient interactions they've had and mentoring within those interactions, they're limited. So the fellowship programs, they provide to individuals the ability to develop their psychomotor skill set with ongoing mentoring, critical review, and further integration of knowledge specific in that area that is quite deep, very meaningful, and it's just like our maybe a peer who wants to go into a neurologic residency or a critical care fellowship or into other areas of specialized practice. And that is how we build our value. And that is how we, in essence, also create advocacy for the benefits we provide. Otherwise, we sort of represent that we're a generalist requiring technical lead. If we simply just say, here is your broad-based education to some depth. Now go forth and learn within the communal settings without any specific ongoing mentorship. I think that was a spectacular answer, and it very nicely describes my general appreciation for the situation. And, of course, I'm biased. I, I went through fellowship training, but it was just completely invaluable. The, the lessons I learned, the mentoring I got, the patient exposures, it was it was by far the best thing I've ever done in my career. It's very nice to hear those positive affirmations. I've had the benefit to educate and mentor approximately 200 fellows, I guess, give or take a few. And I've gained as much, I probably gained more from that than the, any individual one, one of those fellows in training gained, hopefully, because hopefully I've listened enough from them to gain. Mm -hmm. What I see is that our post-professional environment really is, it's our catalyst for new thoughts and ideas within our profession. It's the way that we take what might be N of one case experiences and we feed them back into the PT knowledge base. It's also how we can ask our young professionals or our, maybe a few years in, say, find your value in this profession. and then build that up in other people instead of diminish maybe others to make yourself seem important. 
So it is, I, and fellowship training to me is not fellowship. We are looking to find ways such that we find the very best in each clinician instead of trying to reproduce the next version of ourselves when we are the ones educating in these programs. That way we lift the whole versus diminish some. That's a great way to look at things. And it's about time to wrap up, but I have one more question for you. And that is, do you have any other projects currently in the works that we can look forward to hearing about in the future? Well, there's more work ongoing in the historical realm. I do have work in other areas too, but to talk to the historical realm, uh, work is looking at that foundation for the profession in the United States in the 1850 to 1950 window potentially. To look at that also, to look at the how we, in essence, through our hands-on approach, embrace a movement approach around the 19th century which has the very particular interest of, at that time, combating an opioid epidemic that was occurring at the same level as the current opioid epidemic. It was the failure of modern medicine, as we'll call it in the 1860s, that led to development in the United States of an osteopathic approach in many ways and the rapid growth of mechanotherapy or mesmer-type approaches. And in Europe, it was the stimulus that allowed the medical gymnastics, movement-type approaches to grow there. We have a similar need right now that we have an opioid crisis is occurring right now. And one of the solutions to them is the conservative hands-on skilled interventions that can be provided by physical therapists to give people the confidence and trust in their bodies to absorb force, to move to that that some aspects of pain is normal in his life and to not have a, such a high pharmacological demand requested and placed upon these individuals. So there's some of the areas that we're looking and some specific areas. I, I do. We have ongoing dry needling research. That's a topic for a different day. We have looking at research interventions through the distal upper extremity. And we also continue to look at the role of the physical therapist, physiotherapist in elite sports management at the high levels. So that's a broad look, along with the regulatory work we continue to look at as well. But I, Steve, I just want to say thank you so much for the time to talk to you today, to look at this topic. For the listeners, I would say this might be not quite that specific just discussion about manipulation. But the topic about manipulation is about our profession. We have an identity and we need to not lose it. We don't want to be seen as the individuals holding a clipboard counting reps. We want to be seen as the individuals engaging with clients, with patients at the one-to-one -one level, hearing their stories, feeling their tissue, feeling their pain to some extent, and engaging with them to help them move, not telling them to. And if we do that, our value grows. And that's what I hope for. Well, that's what we hope for too. Thank you for being uh, not just informed, but also eloquent in your ability to describe these things. It has been a distinct pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you so much. And I appreciate the eloquence of the questions. This has been a production of the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. You can learn more about the Academy by visiting our website at aaompt.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for our acronym, AAOMPT.
The views and opinions expressed on the AOPT podcast are those of the interviewers and interviewees and do not represent the official position of AOPT. The information presented should not be used as personal health care or clinical practice advice. If you need to find an expert orthopedic physical therapist near you, then check out the Find a Fellow feature under the Public Resources tab at www.aaompt.org, which you can find in the show notes.